Hello, this is Derek Duncan. I'm happy to bring to you another conversation in the salon. This is volume 12 of the Feed the Ball Salon series, where I and my co-host Jim Urbina, golf course builder and the most popular man in design, have intimate talks with various figures from the world of architecture. A few quick notes before we get started. Please subscribe to Feed the Ball wherever you download your podcasts. Just do a search for Feed the Ball and press the subscribe button. It's easy as that. And leaving a rating and review will help the show turn up in various algorithms. But even more importantly, it makes me feel good to know that you're listening, as long as you leave a positive review. If you haven't made your way through all the past podcasts with everyone from Ron Pritchard to Ron Force to Ron Witten to Rod Whitman, <laughs> as well as people like Brian Silva, Drew Rogers, Kyle France, Jim Wagners, and many others, including my latest with Lester George, you can find those and dozens more at feedtheball.com. And lastly, remember to follow me, if you're not already, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. Our guest for this podcast is Tim Jackson, one half of the firm of Jackson Kahn Design, along with partner David Kahn. They met in the early 2000s working for Tom Fazio and left to start their own design firm in 2009. Aside from being immensely creative and having extensive experience working some extraordinary and some extraordinarily big projects for their own clients and for Fazio, they've developed a reputation for being forward-thinking and technically savvy about how they present their vision of golf. Jim and I will explore the artistic backbone of this company, and Jackson will share his own outlook and insights into some of their most notable designs and experiences. It was great to get to know Tim a little and to hear how Jackson Kahn builds golf courses. Here it is. A conversation with Tim Jackson. You know, Derek, we always talk to architects of record, builders of record, and we always, and I always wonder how they convey their ideas, whether it be paper and pen, a photo they share off their phone or laptop, or a picture they they print. But it's no different today than it was in 1902 or 1904 when McDonald was determined to bring a style of architecture to America that nobody had seen before. And so when he went abroad, he started to gather information. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read this quote from you. I do not mind. Let's do it. And I quote Charles Blair McDonald. I labored four years to that end In 1904, I again made a study of foreign courses, reflecting on the whys and wherefores. In 1906, after four months in Europe, I completed my research studies and brought home with me surveyor's maps of the more famous holes, the Alps, Redan, Eden, and the Road Hole. Also, some 20 or 30 sketches, personally drawn, of holes embodying distinctive features which in themselves seemed misplaced, but could be utilized to harmonize with a certain character of undulating ground and lay the foundation for an ideal whole, end quote. And you see, Derek, that's no different today than yesterday. Pete Dye would kneel down in the ground for me and build sand features. And McDonald and Raynard used these sketches and plasticine models as well as other famous architects. And 
I use a paint gun and open grass and sand whenever I have a chance to convey my ideas or I drag my foot. So this constant idea of how to communicate ideas to other people so they can create the ideas that are stuck in your head is really been fascinating for me to watch. And our guest coming up, Jackson Kahn, they have taken it to the whole new level. Derek, will there be something greater than what Jackson and Kahn are doing today? Or has we have we reached the ultimate communication uh, conveyance between architect, builder, and the, the community he is serving? That's a good question. Good question. And we talk about this a lot, Jim. And it's it, it's really it strikes me as you're trying to you're trying to convey something that it begins abstract, you know, a concept, an idea, and you're you can visualize in your head and you're try you're trying to get somebody else to not only visualize that, but then execute that vision and carry it out. So it, it's really about language and communication, as you said, and it's been done different ways throughout time. Right before we came on, you mentioned that certain architects through time had used plasticine models and had built, you know, uh, clay uh, uh, representations of a green complex. So they did it physically. Back in the early 1900s, as you just read, it was basically, you know, ink on paper was the, the best way you could communicate an idea other than being out in the field and, and talking about it. And now we're in a different age where we have so much more technology and so many more ways to communicate ideas. So what, where this brings me is it's, it's not just a matter of communication, which is important, but also interpretation. It's a language that, that two people have to be able to identify with. And the, the person on the receiving end of it has to be able to speak that language and to be able to know what the, the code and the key is to what the, the designer the ideas that the designer is trying to get across. And we're in an information age now where there's so many more ways to communicate and people have become so much more accustomed to seeing things, you know, visually, computer models, uh, different types of renderings, artistic drawings. Uh, there's more ways to communicate at your disposal now. And I think the the language on the receiving and the interpretation side of it has come just as far. So now we have an, a greater ability perhaps to express a greater range of ideas. Uh, and we're, so, we're such more visual thinkers now, I, I believe. And I think that's probably pretty helpful in design situations. Having said that, it still comes down to executing the, the product, right? I mean, you've got to be able to interpret what the communication is, what the language is, and then build something on that. And that still ultimately comes down to kind of trial and error, doesn't it? Well, it does come down to trial and error. And I think about this a lot, Derek. When you are conveying your thoughts versus print, you use the print. You use words to convey what you saw. And now today people use photos to convey what they saw and want to emulate when I read what you write about golf architecture, my mind is allowed to roam and think about what you're trying to say. And it may not even be close to what the visual that you're perceiving or, or writing about, but I have a chance to, to, in my mind, imagine what that would look like. But when you have photos and you have animation, you see exactly 
what they want. You see exactly what a building is supposed to look like or your house when it gets to be remodeled. You get to see exactly. And I'm not so sure that the idea to to formulate and think of creative ways to interpret your words, Derek, as you write, is not so not such a bad idea. And I don't have to see it exactly. And maybe the product is better if I don't know exactly what you want it to look like, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That's a very good point. Does illustrating or presenting the idea so perfectly, so literally, so absolute, does that hinder, does that scrub away a, a potential layer of additional creativity that could result in not knowing exactly what you're supposed to be if you're a shaper or a builder, not knowing exactly what that end product's supposed to be, you have to there there's a little bit of, of additional personal interpretation involved that could enhance that. Because otherwise, you know, you're just if if it's so perfectly rendered, you're really just replicating. You're really just executing. You you do have a you you're building as you said, a, a home whereas there's a, a, a framing blueprint, you know, and, and, and there's really no derivation from that. You've got to execute that plan. Otherwise, you know, the house may not stand. Whereas golf's different. It's that little layer of creativity, that that interpretation, that improvisation maybe that that happens on, on the shaping end, the building end, that can f- create real character and, and interest. And, and th- your question is, can that, is, th- is that process there when you know so clearly what the what the the vision is and i don't i can't tell you how many times uh i wanted to say to my my former mentor pete die well if i'd have known what you were talking about i would have built that but maybe he didn't want me to know maybe he just wanted to just barely let me know something and to see what i came up with creative wise but as, as a shaper, as I started as a shaper, the more information you gave me, the better I was able to produce a product. Don't you really want that in the end, the best product with the amount of information given? Yeah, you, you obviously you want the best product, but then it, it, it comes down to, to, not to take this in a different direction, but you know, whose vision of the best product? If it's, is it the client? You know, if you present the client with a, a perfect rendering of, of what you're going to build and the client probably wants that or the client, you know, has something that he, th- th- that goal may be something different than the, all the creative juices that are flowing in the architectural and building teams' minds. Good yeah. point. Good point. And I think to myself, I could have been, way more efficient at what I did as a shaper working for Pete if I really knew what he wanted. Little did I know, maybe he didn't want me to know too much. It takes a big, a big uh, expansive view of design, uh, a real artistry to allow that level of creativity. And it, it happens throughout your field in many different ways. I'm always curious about the other side of it. This is again goes back to what we're talking about is the the presentation of an absolute plan and and we can discuss like what absolute means. I'm sure when when Tim Jackson comes on and talks to us, you know, he'll say, yeah, we we probably you know, we produce these like really graphic designs that illustrate really precisely this vision that we have. But then when we get in the field, there's certainly a lot of um, ability to to kind of riff on that or make adjustments as needed. But golf architecture prior to the last 20 years 
was really a plan-based field. There were very few people outside of Pete Dye who were allowing their shapers that much input. It was a, a process of drawing plans. Uh, CAD programs came into existence. You handed the plans off to uh, a construction or a, a contractor crew, and it was just a, it was really a matter of executing what was on the page. And you know, you can argue whether that showed up in the results or not, you know, did the courses suffer because of that? You know, some, maybe some others, you know, others didn't. There's so many things that go into that, the client, the budget, the site, the goals of the, of the whole project. But we're definitely moving into it. had moved into an area where that Pete Dye ideal was producing some of the, the greatest courses that we've seen in the last 20 years. But there's also the other side of it. And I want to ask Tim Jackson about what he does and how he learned that from, from Tom Fazio when he worked for, uh, he and Con worked for Fazio and, and kind of get inside that side of it as well. I'm sure he's got some, some uh, passionate thoughts on his end. I know they're very passionate about the, the kind of renderings that, that they do. They're very talented and we'll see kind of if, if there's any crossover between the way you do things and uh, the way they do things. And there's, and I've looked at some of their drawings. I've looked at some of their graphics. It's, it's mind blowing the detail. It's awe inspiring. If I was an owner, if I was uh, considering hiring this team, I would look at their work and say, Man, I want one of those, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's you would take like you said when you're interpreting a, a, a something that's on a on the page, the a writing, a piece of writing. Nobody can perfectly visualize what that is, what the scene is, or what the description is except for the writer. But when you walk into a, a meeting with a client and you're presenting them with something that is so literal, and it's so it's so realistic. Uh, you're you're giving them of such a a pure image of what they're going to get. I think that's a pretty powerful way to to make your to present your argument. And you know, I I do not do that. I don't present it literally, as you say. I have conceptual ideas. I walk the people, the committees, the owners through an idea. And I convey verbally what I'd like to do, but when you see it in a photo rendering or you see it in a, in a graphic, uh, sometimes it helps the owner, helps people who can't visualize uh, what you're trying to do, and, and that has to be a, a, a positive. I mean, McDonald did it back in 1904. He brought all this stuff with him to show Rayner these sketches, these ideas, and so that they could apply them and some certain type of character to undulating ground. That is classic what you're trying to do. I look forward to talking to Tim about how they apply that to everyday use. Yeah, and maybe the biggest takeaway is that it's always, you know, on from your side of it as the designer and the builder to the other side, the the person who's hiring you, there's got to be a, a mutual understanding, a match. So it's it's as much about you know client selection. I use that word a lot, but because it, it does apply, certain people in your profession are able to select their clients, so to speak. Tom Fazio was able to do that in many cases, but it, it's really it has to be a symbiotic relationship between what the client wants. They have to be able to see what you're selling them, what you're instructing them. So for you, Jim, when you go speak to a club or a developer, 
they have to be able to understand and interpret what you're talking to them about, even though you don't have a computer graphic illustration to show them. And the same with, with Jackson and Con, they're going to draw clients and jobs because the client uh, really wants that, that full visual package and that full rendering and understanding of, of what the course is going to look like when they're finished. And no better way to do it than animation. And as our technology gets better, pretty soon you'll be able to fly a hole and show the whole golf course, show the whole golf course what it's going to look like before it's even built with exception, as I would say, with exception. Well, and we'll talk to Tim about whether this is the, the future as more and more people come into the field assuming that, the, that, the, that there is a field and there continues to be a field of golf course design and construction. Correct, uh, correct. As, as a new generations come into it with different access to technology and different backgrounds, it, this could be the future, uh, what they're doing. And we'll, I'm always wonder how many old uh, foot-in-the-dirt guys will still be around in 20 years. They'll be all gone. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe like some of the the people that are working for you and and Gil and and, and Bill and Tom are, are gonna hold on to that and, and just kind of keep. It'll be like the Jedi's, the old way, the, the monks who who preserve the the, <laughs> the interpretation and, and the the lack of plans. It'll all be the knowledge that you carry around in your head, like the Force. You'll you'll pick them out because they'll have the shoes that are only wore out on one side. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sign of of the uh, design Jedi. Well, let's turn it over. Let, let's uh, let's dial up Tim Jackson and get into this talk, Jim. Great, great, great. Looking forward to it. I think a lot of the people who listen to these podcasts are pretty familiar with Jackson Con and and some of the the work that you've done. But we also know that you that you came up through Tom Fazio and working with him. Give us a little bit of your background and what are some of the projects you worked on with with Fazio and that organization? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I was actually really fortunate. I think you know, timing is so important in life in so many aspects. And um, I went to Purdue and uh, actually majored in agronomy. So I'm a, I'm a turf head, not a not a landscape architect by education. Um, and while I was at Purdue, I was really fortunate. Um, Pete Dye um, redesigned one of the two courses that they had on the, uh, the uh, campus, um, and which was a, a tremendous experience to be able to have. Um, and then I was fortunate to get hired on in Fazio in 99 when golf was booming. And, um, you know, it started off when I started off with Tom, our, our Kansas City office was the West Coast office. And then we moved out to Scottsdale, um, I think, in 2001. Um, and really got to work on a, a wide range um, of projects in different areas. Started out up in the Pacific Northwest at Iron Horse in Whitefish, Montana, and then went over to a Members Club at Aldera in Seattle, Washington. Um, lived down in Mexico for a stretch doing uh, Carencia. After that, um, went to the Big Island of Hawaii, um, Kukio. Worked on that project. Uh, worked on a couple of Discovery Land projects, the Madison Club in La Quinta, California. Um, did a lot of work here in Southern California, Shady Canyon in Irvine. Um, did some remodel work at the Vintage Club, um, Rams Hill down in Borrego Springs, California was an old Ted Robinson course. We, um, we completely remodeled, redesigned, um, El Dorado in, uh, in Rancho Mirage or I'm sorry, Indian Wells, California. So, um, spent a lot of time really mostly in the Western U S, um, working on projects. Yeah. I mean, Pacific Northwest, upstate Montana, Mexico, Hawaii, those are pretty good place to work. 
it, it, it didn't suck. It didn't suck, you know, and it was, it was, um, it was a great experience. I mean, to work in all those different climates and each, you know, uh, you know, Kukio building, building golf on a, a lava field, you know, essentially, um, you know, once you do that, you feel like there's not a whole lot of sites you can't produce something from, you know, kind of gaining that experience. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of great locations, a lot of, um, great projects and, and really good people to work with, which was awesome. Yeah. So what were you primarily responsible for? What, how did you function within that team? Sure. So we, you know, once, once you, um, you know, there, there was a, a comfort in your, in your abilities as far as, uh, you know, what you saw in the field and what the design goals were. Um, Tom was very, um, open, um, with allowing the associates to have a lot of the, um, responsibility for the design details. You know, essentially, um, we had to hide the car paths, which was very, very important to Tom. And it's still important <laughs> up to today. Um, we had to make the golf course playable. Um, we had to make it beautiful and we had to get it done on time and we had to get it done on budget. Um, you know, Tom was the only guy in the company that had to go to every project and, and he was quite busy during that time frame. So he may get out to a project three to four times during construction. Um, but we had a layered structure. So we had senior designers. I worked a lot under Kevin Sutherland who mm-hmm. has designed a lot of great golf, um, learned the vast majority of what I know today from Kevin. Um, he was a great teacher and a great mentor. Um, but we really got to, you know, we really got to make decisions. We got to make design decisions, um, you know, fairly early on. So between myself and David and Scott Hoffman, who we work with, um, you know, we've had the ability to execute over $600 million in golf course design and construction. Um, and there's a lot of experience that we gain by doing that. And I'm so thankful to have worked for Tom who allowed us the opportunity to do that. So, um, you know, we got to kind of dictate the design of the, you know, the golf holes from a, a detail standpoint, green complexes, bunker placements, the look, the aesthetic, um, you know, Kevin was a, a great taskmaster. He worked for Wadsworth construction for about 15 years before he came to fast. So, you know, we were as well versed in golf course construction as we were in golf course design. Um, and I think that's really, really important um, if you want to be successful as a designer moving forward. So we were just really fortunate. The people I got to work with, the projects I got to work on. Did you work with Dave on most of those projects? How did you two interact? So, yeah. So Dave, um, Dave started at Fazio. I think it was there about six years when Dave came in. He was kind of like the last young guy into our West Coast office. And mm-hmm. um, and David, uh, he, he's from the Midwest as well. He's from Ohio originally and found his way out to Phoenix and um, spent some time working for Landscapes Unlimited on some projects. And and then he hired on he hired on to Fazio in 2003, 2004. Um, and when David got there, um, David's very, very talented. David's, uh, very much an artist and very much has an artist's mind and an artist mentality. Um, and so it was interesting for us to see that, you know, kind of start in the office. David did a lot of the drawing work and, and immediately all the, um, quality of the, uh, the product that we put out from a planning standpoint improved tremendously because of David's abilities. Um, and then to see him go in the field, we worked together, um, on Chileno Bay down in Cabo, David and I did that together. Um, a little bit at Madison Club. Uh, Dave was there for a little bit. Um, but we really didn't work a lot together in the field. Um, you know, we really interacted more in the office environment. Um, and then, uh, you know, Tom in 2000 and 2009, I think is when Tom really kind of reduced the, the size of the company. And, and Tom, he was great. He probably kept uh, all of us on probably a year longer than he should have, quite frankly. But um, he's, he's a good guy, really good guy. Um, but that was Dave and mine's opportunity then to kind of, you know, put a stake in the ground on our own. I know Jim has a lot he wants to ask you and talk about, but I want to follow up on this, uh, something you just said about Tom Fazio. You know, he said he gave you a lot of freedom to to make adjustments in the field and kind of empowered the, the team under Kevin Sutherland. What, what did you learn from, from Kevin and Tom Fazio specifically about hazard placement and green contour? Uh, I've, my perspective on it is I kind of think Fazio is 
as well known as he is, as name brand as he is, as highly rated as so many of his courses are, he's kind of an enigma because his his output and his style of courses cover such a broad range of styles and locations and presentations. And um, he, he, I know he's very client driven. He produces what the client wants, uh, and he does. I don't know that he typically comes into it other than some basic things like hard hide the cart path and certain things. I don't think that he, he has like a unified vision of, of design the way uh, certain other architects through time have. So I, I'm curious to what, what about those two concepts? Did you take away from him hazard placement and green contour? Sure. So um, with respect to Tom, um, and it's interesting that you say that because I think he gets short shrift a lot of time um, as far as the, you know, the product that has been produced, the golf courses that are out there and generally speaking, how widely they're accepted and enjoyed. Um, you know, I look back on it and there's always errors in golf course design and golf course architecture. And I think Tom was one of the first um, designers coming out of the 1980s of the, um, the overshaping and the, the very, very difficult golf courses to, to step back and break away and say, Hey guys, let's, let's create something that's a little bit more fun, a little bit more enjoyable. Um, you know, he always reminded us rich guys suck at golf guys. You know, so just remember that as we're designing. Um, they did not make their money. That's a philosophy, I guess. <laughs> it is. It is. You know, and uh, you know, so it was really important that that again we create a fun and enjoyable um, environment. You know, Tom always shied away from from center line hazards. Tom tried to shy away from from force carries, um, and it's interesting. Um, when we did uh, Mirabelle, we did a redesign of a Norman course in North Scottsdale. Um, once the golf course opened, it was Discovery Land Project um, when we did it. Um, the most difficult hole on the golf course was a 365-yard par 4 that had a cross hazard 70 yards short of the green, a wash that was a 404 that we could not pipe, we could not fill in because we didn't have enough disturbance. Over the first two years of that golf course, that 365-yard par 4 was by far the most difficult hole on the golf course for the members. You know, we always tried to kind of sneak stuff in. We always tried to um, kind of maybe create some things that, that we saw from a design standpoint. And Tom would let a lot of it, a lot of it stay. Um, but, you know, Tom, generally speaking, um, you know, he, he didn't like a lot of centerline hazards. He didn't like a lot of uh, a lot of cross hazards um, with respect to green contours. You know, there was really no um, set philosophy. Um, again, we really had a lot of freedom as far as that goes. Um, I think the, the one thing that was important was variety you know, variety in size, variety in shape, um, variety in, you know, uh, approach angle, things of that nature. Um, so there wasn't any unifying vision. There wasn't necessarily um, a tremendous amount of, of input as far as this is what we do and this is why we do it. Um, it just all fit within that general context of make it fun, make it enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you, uh, Tim, I've seen some of your work. I've seen Coquia. I've seen the Madison Club. I've seen Corinthia. I'm a big fan of Wade Hampton, Fazio's work at, at Wade Hampton. I've seen Shadow Creek. I seek out Tom Fazio golf courses because I know the standard is so much greater when you, when you uh, embody these, these sites that you were given. But when I walk and played, I walk and played Coquia, I walked uh, uh, and, and played Carincia. I've seen the Madison Club. I didn't play it. Those places are special. The clients that you work for were special. Did you see yourself in any way, shape, or form working on something that was going to be so spectacular? Or did you know because of the Fazio interaction that, that the product was always going to be top-notch? You know, the, the, uh, thank you. No, the, the, you know, it's an interesting, you know, I don't think you really appreciate the context until you kind of step outside of it and, and, and have a, an opportunity to kind of look back and, 
and look at the industry as a whole and, and really look at the, you know, the projects that we were able to work on and be a part of. Um, you know, we were so, you know, we, we were on site um, every day and, 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 um, and that was our job. That was our, our place in the company. Essentially, we would move around to the locations um, and be there every day executing the design details, working with the contractor, working with ownership, um, ensuring that we were you know, achieving all the goals. Um, I, I definitely knew the dollars that were being spent on these projects were significant in comparison to a lot of the, the work that was going on in the industry. Um, but I also knew that the expectations of the owners and the sites that we were actually given on which to design um, required that. Uh, Madison Club was a dead flat piece of desert that DLC wanted to, you know, uh, charge two and a half million dollars for an acre of real estate for. Um, we needed to create an environment that would allow for that. Um, so the resources that were spent on on Madison Club were significant. We moved five million cubic yards of dirt. Um, there was twelve million dollars in landscaping that was put in around the golf course to help kind of create that environment um, and everything that goes into that. Um, so, and it wasn't just the dollars. I mean, the dollars, the resources are important, but it's what you do with the resources, I think, that are more important. Um, and I think there's a lot of designers who have worked on projects where they've had significant resources and, and perhaps the, you know, it's not the type of golf that, that any of us would necessarily find engaging or fun. Um, so it's really the application that's the most important thing. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, looking back on it now, again, I, I really, really appreciate the education that I received in golf course design and, and, and construction. Um, you know, we design differently than, than Tom, you know, we, we, we do things that appeal to us that we feel are appealing to, um, the type of people that are going to play our, our golf courses. Um, but at the same time, you know, the foundational elements of golf course design and what makes any particular golf hole or golf course successful. Um, there is a baseline there to some extent. And I think we received as good as an education in that as we could have. Do you find that the fact that you were responsible or, or part of a team that, uh, built, $600 million worth of golf over that time period and, and work with some of these clients. So you're talking about like Discovery Land Company and, and they had these these really high profile projects and delivered a product that was really well received and, and uh, really uh, successful uh, according to the developer and the client. Is that, I imagine that's something you can bring into uh, meetings with prospective clients now. You've had some some uh, fairly high profile clients that you worked with in Jackson Con. Uh, I imagine that's a that that is a selling point for your services now. The fact that you have that in your background and you have worked on some of these really elaborate big budget projects. You know for sure. Um, and and there's actually there's two sides to the to to that equation. Um, you know, having worked for Tom and having uh, worked on the projects that we did for Tom, it definitely has opened some doors um, along the way, and and we're very thankful for that. Um, at the same time, too, we've had to kind of fight the perception that, you know, you guys need $35 million to design a golf course, you know, um, and, and we don't. Um, you know, again, the dollars that are spent are a direct relation to the goals of the owner and the site conditions you encounter as a starting point. Um, and, and, and truly, the vast majority of the work that we've done as Jackson Con um, outside of Scottsdale National has been has been remodel work. Um, you know, to date, the other course in the Bad Little Nine are the only two really original um, uh, designs that we've been able to be a part of. And, and it's just the nature of the industry today. Um, and we're still learning. You know, we, we were so insulated from the business when we were with Tom. We were just in the field with flags and a paint gun and some bulldozers and, and honestly just having so much fun and, and, and happy to be doing it. Um, you know, and, and now we're kind of gaining the education on the business side a little bit and, and catching up in that regard and, um, and, you know, and doing the best we can. But, um, but yeah, you know, to be able to walk into um, when you're competing for a job and, and put your resume up there and this is what we've been a part of and this is what we've, we've done on that work, um, it's helpful for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, Derek, I can tell you that I actually competed against uh, Jackson Kahn 
at Eugene Country Club. Did you guys get that job, uh, Tim? We, we did actually. I was up at Eugene um, last week. So, yeah. So, uh, I uh, I interviewed for it uh, uh, along with uh, on my way down to Bandon Dunes while I was doing the work for Mike Kaiser, and I was I, I was asked to stop in and, and 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 take a look and see if I could offer some ideas for Eugene Country Club, a spectacular site. Chandler Egan uh, design redone by Robert Trent Jones. Uh, That's Jackson the course Park. that he Jones reversed, right? Yeah. He flipped all the holes around. Exactly. You know what my idea was? Let's put it back to Chandler Egan. I don't know <laughs> how well that went over. <laughs> uh, well, we, we, we proposed the same thing. That didn't go over very well. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was classic, Derek. So just remember, not everything, all your brilliant ideas don't, aren't, aren't so brilliant. <laughs> well, at least two of you had the same brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I, when I was interviewing at, at Eugene Country Club, I asked what are the other people interviewing, and, and they said Jackson Kahn. And they said, well, they've shared some very interesting and beautiful uh, renderings of what they might be doing. Uh, could you do the same? And I said, no, but I could go out there and paint some lines in the grass. <laughs> <laughs> and so I know that the, the technology and the, the artistry that Jackson Kahn uh, bring to the table is immense in the power that it provides. And Tim, you, you made a very good point. You can, you can, Talk about Tom Fazio and your interaction with him and what you've learned. But now it's, it's time for Jackson Kahn and, and what do you bring to the table? And your artistry uh, is one of the things that you bring to the table. Do you find it an advantage or a disadvantage when you bring those renderings and then, then now you have to kind of act on those renderings? Yeah, no, for sure. It's, 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 it goes both ways. Um, in, you know, again, David's um, artistic abilities um, are really what provides us the opportunity to be able to do that. We, we, we look at golf holes, we look at concepts, um, and, you know, the old adage that a picture is worth a, a thousand words is really, really true. When you go into a board meeting and you're dealing with very successful people, either business people, lawyers, bankers, um, you know, the types that you find that populate the, the, the boards or the greens committee at these clubs, um, their ability to visualize what you're talking about is very limited. Um, and it's, and it's simply because the lack of, um, of experience that they have, obviously with compared to what we all do. Um, and so we, we, we definitely, um, it's an advantage to be able to show the existing condition and guys, and here's the type of golf that we see. One of the things that we took from Tom, one of the things that was so important to Tom that, that make it playable, make it beautiful, you know, the, the make it playable, make it beautiful part is probably the, the, the one aspect of Tom Fazio designs that has been most criticized by the, the, um, the golf uh, architect critics over the years. Um, but you know, people respond to, to visual golf. They respond to something that looks great. Um, you know, it's, it's true that there's very few golfers that stand on a tee and really look at a golf hole and strategically digest how they're supposed to play it, or even really have the ability, you know, necessarily to play it strategically, if they can understand that everyone can stand on a tee and look at a golf hole and say, wow, that looks amazing. That that's a beautiful golf hole. We try to marry both of those. We, we love the strategy. We love creating those, those strategic elements, but, um, but we also understand that the, the, the most golfers respond to the visual stimulus more than the strategic stimulus. So when we create those drawings and we go in there, um, we do tend to get a, a really good response from, from the people that we're presenting to. Um, but you're hundred percent right. Once we, once we show that now there's an expectation that's been created um, and we, you know, have to try to execute that. And we've had drawings that we've done 
over the years that we've gone and presented. Um, and then we've gone back out in the field after they're excited and looked at and said, gosh, man, I, you know, now we got to, how are we going to pull this off? You know? Um, but we always are very, very open and very honest as well saying these are concepts, these are thoughts, these are ideas. Um, the practical application is much different. Um, you know, I know that, um, gosh, there, there's been some designers, um, that have seen some of our work and, and I think they've referred to us more as golf course, um, decorators as more than golf course architects because of the imagery that we create the feeling that we just create an image and we turn it over to a contractor and say, go execute this. And they couldn't be further from the truth. Um, everything that we do is Jackson con in the conceptual stage is just a starting point, just a baseline. Um, and you know, Jim, um, you know, the only way you're going to maximize the golf is being out there in the field and being agreed. agreed. Um, and so, you know, it's, so it's been interesting, but there have been some times where we've, um, you know, we've deviated from the original sketch and we've, and, you know, we had to go back and explain why. Um, and there's been some times where we've, we've created the sketch and then we've had to try to figure out how to, how to go about it and try to execute it as best we can. Um, generally speaking, depending on the type of client and the type of club and the type of process, um, some of the initial work that we'll do at Eugene, for example, we're, we're going to work on a green complex, uh, this, this fall. Um, they're kind of very slow moving up there. They're a very cautious membership. Um, and, and, and so we want to make sure that we, you know, we build faith and we build trust that we can do what we say we can do both from a, a design standpoint and from a budgetary standpoint. Um, so the first green that we're going to work on number 11, um, you know, we talked internally, we need to, we need to, you know, really kind of hold to the, to the design concept that they've seen as much as possible. So they have that faith and that, um, that we're going to be able to execute it, you know, as we move forward a little bit, you know, if you gain that trust, as you know, then you can start to, to maybe deviate a little bit more. You can have a little bit more freedom in what you do. Um, so it kind of varies. It varies, it varies, um, project to project. It varies where we may be in a project and, and how we look at it and how we approach it. Well, Derek, I can tell you that when you go back and look at what Mike Strantz did for, for his work, um, and, and what Dana Fry talks about, uh, Tom Fazio's influence, I would ask Tim, was the sketching that Mike Strantz did, uh, or did you ever work with Mike Strantz? And did the sketches um, allow you to, and, and both you and, and Khan, David Khan, to say, you know, that's an avenue we, we like. We, we want to go down that road. Yeah, so we, um, Mike had already left Fazio um, when, when I came on in 99. Um, and I got to work with some of the guys who worked with Mike and, and the appreciation they had for his eye and his vision and his abilities, um, were, were, were still really, really prevalent. Um, we never really had the opportunity to, to see a lot of his sketches, to see a lot of his work until we got to MPCC, the Monterey Peninsula Country Club. And Mike did a full set of watercolors for the golf course and, and, you know, the, the, the artistry that he had, the eye that he had, um, was incredible. And it's amazing that you, you know, Strance is one of David and mine's favorite designers um, by far. Um, his boldness at, at certain times, um, certainly a lot of the work that he did in the Carolinas, um, the uniqueness of his green complexes, his strategies, his thought process, um, man, it was, there's some, there's some amazing, amazing golf holes that Mike Strance created. Um, it was interesting for me when we got to MPCC to walk the shore course and to see the restraint that Mike actually had when he did the short course compared to his work in the Carolinas. And I think that, um, you know, a great, great credit to him, you know, when the environment is so amazing, when the environment is so incredible, um, you know, the golf doesn't necessarily need to carry the day and it's an amazing golf course. And I think the short course is, is absolutely incredible. 
Um, but it's so different from the rest of his work um, from a boldness standpoint, but so similar in the artistry and how he presented the golf holes. The lines on the short course on the, at MPCC, when you stand on a tee and you look at the flow of the golf holes and the way that the bunkers cradle the fairways and all the lines work together, um, it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, Tim, you know, we'll never know exactly how it would have turned out if, if strands were still alive and still with us and designing. I've always postulated that I, that after he sort of proved himself with Tobacco Road and some of those projects, and then he gets um, Monterey Peninsula, and as you say, the setting is, is so spectacular and his lines are so amazing. I, I've always postulated that I think he might have kind of settled down a little bit uh, and, and sort of found a gentler side, and he might have also gotten... Uh, some more sites like that. I think he'd been he'd have been in the in the equation to get some sites like Sand Valley and Cabot and uh, you know the Kaiser style projects and and that might have like tempered his hand. Do you have you do you ever think about how the site the the richness of the site the the raw material influences how ambitious you can be architecturally? Oh, for sure. Um, I think it, well, I think it, it dictates it to a large extent, or it can certainly, right? Um, you know, we, we, we've worked on projects where we've moved a lot of dirt. Um, and we've moved a lot of dirt because the expectation, again, uh, for the golf was such that we needed to, um, to, you know, again, to create the type of environment or to create the type of golf. And, and a lot of, a lot of, obviously, golf being tied to housing, um, certainly when I was coming into the, into the industry, um, you know, the easiest way to create value is to, is to sink the golf holes into the ground to raise the edges and create views, right? Um, so that drove a lot of it, too, to be honest. And, you know, there were functional needs of a project that needed to be, um, that needed to be addressed. But, um, but, yeah, no, I mean, you know, we, we would rather find golf than create golf. We know how to create golf. Um, we had to create golf at the other course. We had to create golf at, at the Madison Club. Um, you know, you go back and you look at Shadow Creek and, you know, probably, you know, one of the original amazing created environments for golf and what Tom did there. I think when Tom did Shadow Creek, a light bulb went off and he realized if an owner had enough resources, there was no bad site for golf. You know, you could you could pull it off. You could do it. Yeah. Um, and, and once he did that, I think a lot of people felt like, well, that's what Tom Fazio wants to do. He wants to move dirt. He wants to he wants to create golf. And we had some projects like that. But for us as designers, Jackson Con too, at, at the other course, you know, Mr. Parsons had had was gave us gave us a goal as far as what he wanted for that golf course and for that golf club. Um, we spent probably more time than with Bob than any client that we had previously before we started construction, explaining the detail of every single golf hole and, and why it was going to be unique and why it was going to be special and why it was going to be memorable. Um, and, and we put, you know, all the time that we worked for Fazio, um, there was a lot of times, well, you guys had unlimited funds. You had unlimited budget. There was always a budget. There was always something that we were working towards. Bob Parsons is the one client that never asked us for a number. He just said, guys, this is what I want. Go create it. And once we started, we struggled because we wanted feedback from Bob. We wanted him to come out and look at the golf course. Are we on the right track, Bob? Is this what you want? And he would just say, is it grass yet? And we'd say, no. He's like, tell me when it's grassed, you know? So he was, it was interesting. He was one of the most intense pre-construction efforts. And then once we started, he just said, let me know when it's done, which was amazing. So how difficult was it to build in that desert environment at Scottsdale? Was it an, is that an expensive environment to build golf in? Were you... At, were you ever doing things on that project in that climate where you thought this is getting out of hand or this could, I know there's no budget. We haven't talked money, but we're kind of getting up against what our own comfort zone is here. You know, not necessarily. Um, and, and, and we, 
even though there wasn't a budget, we were responsible with the dollars, right? You, you have to be, you want to be important. You know, you have to, you know, you can, do, you can nail all the design goals um, for most clients. And if you blow the budget, then it's still a failure, right? And that was really ingrained in us with Fazio. It didn't matter how much money there was in the budget, guys. We still have a budget we need to be responsible to. The difficulty at Scottsdale um, was how closely underneath the, the desert floor, the bedrock um, laid, essentially. So, you know, we, we blasted um, a lot. At, at Scottsdale National, um, the, the side benefit from that was all the rock that came out of the ground, we were able to then use to create the environment for the golf course to sit in. Um, you know, I think we had about, um, you know, maybe you know, 1.5 million cubic yards of total earth moving at Scottsdale National. Um, and a lot of that was rock and all that rock was placed around the golf holes. Um, and and it, we, we, we needed to do it because the land that Bob bought had been graded for lot pads. Essentially, Lyle Anderson was going to do a, um, a, a housing development um, on the land next to where Bob bought the original golf club of Scottsdale. Um, but so it was it was that was the difficulty. Um, but the opportunity then was to use that material. And, and you, know, uh, you know, we sent uh, two guys with backpack sprayers around the golf course to spray Permian on all the rock that came out of the ground to age it, to make it look like it had been there forever. Um, and it's amazing to go out there today and see how the environment's matured with all the landscaping that's been put in as well. Um, and people would never know. And that's the key. You know, when you move dirt, you have to move it on a scale that people can't reference or realize what you did. And if you take them out there and you ask them, what do you think the existing grade of this spot was when we started and they have no idea, you know, then we feel like we're successful. Um, and, and I think a lot of Designers, whether through resources um, or through you know different experiences, um, when they move dirt, they they don't move enough dirt. Um, it's almost like, hey guys, you know, either lay it on the land or really go for it, because the in between, a lot of times, I think, is what you know potentially doesn't maximize the potential. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a great term, Derek. He says, "Lay it on the land." Do you have a site in mind that you would like to lay it on the land? Oh, I, you know, in my dreams, um, you know, anything with sandy soils and pine trees would be. <laughs> would be, would be amazing. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's interesting as a, you know, as an industry. Um, and, and I certainly appreciate that. Um, you, you know, I, I, well, I said this, I, I grew up when I grew up in Northern Indiana, the first course that Mr. Kaiser did the dunes club was about 15 minutes away. So I got a chance to caddy there as a kid to play there. Um, and that was really my first appreciation of, of something that was better than most um, in the area where I grew up playing golf. I grew up playing on an old Bill Diddle design, which was a WPA project in LaPorte, Indiana from uh, 1932. Um, and it was a, it was a great, great golf course, small footprint. Um, you know, um, you know, my first experience with golf as an 11 year old playing and, and still love the course to this day. Um, but you know what, what Kaiser did at the, 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 the dunes, uh, the dunes, the dunes club in, in New Buffalo, Michigan, seeing that and appreciating that and knowing that there was something better out there was, was really kind of eye opening. Um, you know, in, in the work that he's done since then and the designers that he's worked with, um, have really produced some of the, you know, the best golf. And I think the adherence that, that he has and the adherence that some of those designers have, um, with the site selection, you know, really drives that, um, you know, when you can really afford to be picky and kind of choose your spots, um, it, it's very, very helpful. But, um, yeah, again, we would, we would love to have the type of site where we could walk it and, and, and just find the golf. Um, but we haven't really had a lot of opportunities, um, in that regard yet. Yeah, we're hopeful to, but, um, you know, unfortunately not so much to date. What do you think you'd be more comfortable with, uh, where you came from or something uncharted where you could go? Um, I'm sorry not... to put you on a spot. I do it to Derek all the time. No, that's okay. I'm just trying to understand the question a little bit. <laughs> I guess 
you're comfortable, as you said, creating the environment, moving some dirt, as you did uh, with a lot of Fazio golf courses, and now with with yourself with Jackson Con. Or do you think your future could be lay it on the land and and head in the new direction, as Mike Strand stated, MPCC? Right. Uh, you know, I uh, part of me hopes that we you know we get to continue to do both or we have an opportunity to both continue with, um, you know, creating golf when we have to, but have the opportunity to find golf, um, when we can, you know, I think, I think it's, it's easy at times for designers to get kind of pigeonholed, um, into certain, well, this is the, you know, this is the big dirt guy, or, or, you know, this is the guy that you should hire if you have this type of site. Um, I think if you're a talented designer, if you have an experience, you know, you should be able to execute on a range of different sites and a range of different projects. You know, I, and, and I, you know, so this is a question and I'll ask you guys, cause this is, this is something I ask people, um, and it's interesting the responses that I get, and and truly is a mental exercise. And and I respect both designers and I respect both courses. But what really tr- took more creativity to create, Shadow Creek or Sand Hills? You know, at the end of the day, I think they're both vastly different golf courses. Um, but you know, one, I mean, they're they're, they're the polar opposites, um, the the extremes of golf course design and golf course construction. Um, you know, both unique in their own way. But what which one really took more creativity and more thought? Um, to try to create the golf that, that was that was created, um, and the range of responses that I get is it's all over the place. You know, um, some people are offended that you would um, feel like you're you're dismissing what um, you know what Mr. Core, Mr. Crenshaw did, and it's not that at all. Um, it's it's just simply a question that is you know, as you look at it, what do you think? What do you see? And see, Derek, I I I would love to answer this right off the bat. One of my Go favorite, my my two favorite architects uh, that I try to emulate. Mackenzie and McDonald and Rayner. McDonald and Rayner moved dirt everywhere they went. Mackenzie laid it on the ground, as you said, and created artistry and beauty at its finest. Your ideas about Shadow Creek and Sandhills are spot on. I went to Shadow Creek because I had to see. And I, I grew up at the Sandhills learning about minimalism. Derek knows this a lot about me talking with Bill and Ben. So I appreciate both of them. They're both works of art. They're beautiful. They're they're in their own their their own environments each. McDonald did it, McKenzie did it. Tim uh, Jackson and and David Kahn, they're going to do both uh, maybe in the long term. I'm not offended by it at all. I think each has their own beauty, but Derek knows this. I tend to lean towards lay it on the land, although I'm restoring a lot of McDonald and Rainer golf courses as well as McKenzie courses, each have their own beauty, each have their own character. Derek, I know you may lean one way or another. Well, Tim, it goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago is with strands and going to Monterey and that environment, that landscape, when you work in in such a great site like that, and even to take it to the next level, like a Sand Hills or, or a Pacific Dunes, those sites are already so majestic. It limits what you should do architecturally i mean it, so so the work of, of bill core when we look back on his career so many of the sites are so great even though like at friar's head they created half the golf course but it doesn't give you an opportunity to really express yourself architecturally it i think it gives you an opportunity to express yourself design wise intellectually strategy wise but there's a term architecture which is to build things and Certainly Shadow Creek is a greater expression of architecture, 
I think, than Sandhills. You you put it into the, the dynamic thought versus creativity, and you didn't quite put it like that, but you used those two words. I, I would say that probably very few golf courses ever built received more thought than Sandhills. The the effort and the intellect and the time that, that Bill and Ben and, and their guys put into that was astronomical. It's probably the highest achievement of visualizing a golf course on a natural landscape. Um, and and I'm not really dodging the question, but Shadow Creek and the courses like that are the ultimate expression of creativity, something that comes from nothing, something that is completely uh, um, manufactured and envisioned and rendered from a zero starting point. Now, I will say when a course like Shadow Creek, when you get into that, that side of pure creativity and pure architecture, you're on the hook for a lot more since everything you're doing is coming out of uh, the, the architect and the designer's mind and their team, everything you're responsible for everything there. So in, in that you're walking a higher tightrope when you're building like that, I think. Um, although on the other hand, I remember having a conversation with, with uh, Dave Axland Dave said, you know, talking about the same subject, he said, what, what's, what's harder? Is it taking a site that's a, a two and building a golf course that's a seven? You know, that's a five-point jump, theoretically. Or is it taking a, a site that's a nine and making it a 9.5? You know, I, I, I can't answer that. But I, I do think I have a lot of respect for the creative side of it, the architectural side, the uh, industrial side, because that has to that's the that's the human endeavor and sand hills and sites like that is is uh you know it's certainly an intellectual endeavor but it's a, it's a high starting point but there's a, a certainly a different and it's different skill sets and I, i've you know bill Kors told me and, and many other people he he couldn't do sand or he couldn't do uh shadow creek that you know, that's just, he wouldn't want, I don't think he'd want to try. And he, he respects the ability to do that because it's, it's such a different practice. It's such a different, different endeavor than, than what he's used to. Yeah. No, and I, and I, and I appreciate both as well. I mean, I, I, you know, I, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for, for Mr. Corn, Mr. Crenshaw. I mean, Bill's one of the kindest, nicest people you could ever meet on the face of the earth. And he's, he's really a, a large reason why we were able to work with Bob Parson at Scottsdale national, um, you know, Bill putting in a good word for us and um, Bob respecting that and, uh, and giving us the opportunity. So we owe him and, and had been fortunate to be able to express our, our gratitude to, to Bill. So, but it is, it's interesting. I mean, you know, and, and thankfully, you know, golf course, design golf course architecture it's a you know it's a it's a it's a big tent um you know and, it, and it's always interesting to me too the you know some of the writers some of the critics um you know they really postulate what they feel golf course design should be and how it should be achieved and and i think that drives things at times as well um you know and um and i'm not sure how how good that is or um or how bad that is you know we did mpcc um, when we walked the property, the first golf hole that David and I saw was the uh, what be, or is the fourth the fourth green complex, um, and it was a um, an attempt by the previous designer who had worked on the project to build a Biritz green, um, and there was just so much geometry on the golf hole, and 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 we saw something vastly different. Um, we saw something that that worked with one of the major features of the land that was within that area, um, and and tried to design a golf hole around that that really kind of fit the land more than feeling that it was it was kind of forced in. It took more effort for us to 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 move the dirt to make it feel like it was more natural. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it's a a, a much improved golf hole. But one of the golf course um, critics who who saw it, um, you know, wrote an article on the best template holes in Northern California. And, 
and you know, Seth Rayner routed MPCC, but Seth Rayner, I think, passed away really before any meaningful work was done from a design and construction standpoint. And Bob Zoller, who had been the superintendent there for over 40 years, um, who recently retired, um, you know, has as much history at MPCC as anybody. Um, so anyway, the hole that we built, um, to some extent, um, resembles uh, a reverse redan in concept. Um, when David and I looked at the golf hole, we had no conversation about building a redan or a reverse redan or any type of template hole. Um, we simply just looked at the land and said, man, what could really fit in here and what would really be a cool golf hole? Um, so anyway, the article came out that Jackson Kahn um, restored Rainer's reverse redan <laughs> at MPCC. And I don't know if it's, archi- or, or if it's uh, you know, journalistic laziness or trying to create that narrative that this is what golf should be, right? We never tried to restore a reverse redan, nor was there a reverse redan ever there, right? But in the, in the writer's eyes, that's how he saw golf, you know? The, the template holes are really what, what, what golf should be. And so he fit our design into his narrative as opposed to truly asking, why did you guys do what you did? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's always interesting to some respect to see how people see things and how that drives um, what happens in the industry to some extent. For sure. Do you think, do you think Tim, that what's driving the industry right now, uh, Derek and I talk about this all the time, is the last 20 years one of the best best renditions of the new golden age? Do you take an account that the golden age of design was important? Or is what's driving architecture today trying to revert back to what was good back then? How does Tim uh, Jackson and David Kahn fit into that? You know, we... Um... We definitely have an appreciation for um, the the golden age of architecture and understanding, um, you know, the, you know, kind of the formation of golf in America and um, C.B. McDonald and and Seth Rayner and and their influence um, in the initial stages of of golf course um, design in the United States. It's, it's, It's very interesting to us and we do have an appreciation and a respect for it. From our standpoint, though, we don't want to repeat it. Um, you know, we feel that there's already been enough redans that have been created. Um, you know, there's enough Eden holes that have been created. Um, you know, there's enough baritzes that have been created. Um, you know, we don't try to replicate what has been done and we don't do it out of disrespect. Um, we simply feel that, you know, we want to try to be creative in our own right. Um, you know, there's always lessons I think that can be learned, um, you know, looking back and seeing what's been done in the past and studying golf courses and, and gaining an appreciation. Um, but it's interesting to me that, you know, one individual, um, C.B. McDonald, went over to the, to, to, the, to the islands and, you know, his idea, his thought process on what were the, the strategies that should be replicated and should be implemented has had such an influence on so many courses in the United States of America. And we wouldn't want to change those. You know, we, wouldn't, we would never deem to come in and say, hey, we can do better. Um, you know, that, that, that should be, um, th- those courses should be held, I think, in historical context and in, in, in what they um, tried to do um, and what they achieved. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we, we just feel like we want to try to um, come up with our own thoughts and our own ideas and, and certainly have no, you know, no um, disrespect or no um, dismissiveness towards those that do like to, to replicate or implement those types of strategies. We just feel there's enough guys out there doing it um, and have done it that we would rather do something different. Tim, I, and I'll ask Jim this as well, but both of you, on that topic, what do you think the general golf appetite is for more Seth Rayner, more template holds, more 
like derivative classical architecture. And I know derivative is, has a negative connotation. I don't mean it that way. But I was I just spoke to an architect who has plans to do a full Seth Rayner. I think it's going to be 22 holes, all all 22 template holes, a project. Um, very, he was very excited about it. What do you think the app? I mean, is is there a real craving for this? Is it marketing? Is it uh, simply just uh, an homage, like an honest homage? What's the what's the sense that you get, Tim, for how how much the public wants more of this style of architecture? Because in one sense, it's really just this generation, maybe the last twenty years that 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 classical architecture has really been reasserted into golf course architecture and contemporary design it, it it really wasn't referenced in the 70s and 80s and much of the 90s very much it's really popular now at least amongst people who pay attention to architecture so again what what do you think the demand is for that style of architecture and those types of holes you know i i think um from my perspective um you know we we never we've had one one client um who's asked us perhaps to reference um, uh, some template concepts um, in, in the entire time that I've been in the industry in 20 years. Um, and I, I think generally speaking, the, the golfing public is, is mostly unaware of the origins of golf course design and architecture in America. Um, it's very rare that you run into somebody who um, either has an appreciation or an understanding of what template greens are, um, quite frankly. Um, and even from an ownership standpoint, again, we've had very, very few. When, when, when we were at MPCC, we asked the, the club, do you guys want a Seth Rayner type of golf course? And the answer was no, we want the best golf course that you guys see on the property. Um, and so even those that may have a tie at times and a loose tie, I mean, I shouldn't say loose tie, Seth Rainer routed MPCC and we respected that routing and followed that routing. Um, but even, even some clubs with that connotation really, really don't necessarily want to see or, or have a desire to see that type of, uh, that type of golf course design from our experience. And Derek, from my experience, when you asked about how much appetite there is, I spend a lot of time restoring Seth Rayner designs. That that's what I do. I, Absolutely, I enjoy it. Yeamans Hall. I've worked at Mid Ocean, on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Currently at the Blind Brook Club and, and and Midland Hills, restoring those template holes. And Tim, you know, I I, I study old architecture. I study old aerials. I I, I enjoy what Rayner and McDonald Brett brought to American golf. I toured MPCC. I could have envisioned a Rainer golf course at MPCC, the only one out west except for Wailai and Mid-Pacific uh, out in the Hawaiian Islands. So I appreciate them. I, I understand their part in, in, in architectural history. Would I go and build 18 template holes on a new design that Mr. Kaiser gave me on a piece of land? No, I would not. Would I go and experience, as David Kidd said, uh, something new, something different? Uh, you alluded to the same. Yes, I would. But deep back in my mind, deep back in David Kidd's mind and Bill Coors mind and Gil Hans's mind are all of these old golf courses that we've studied and looked at. And I still believe there is an influence way back in the back of the mind that embraces what mcdonald and rayner brought but as you said tim did you really need another beer ritz at the mpcc a, a jackson con interpretation probably not was the land more conducive 
to a beauty that, that you were going to bring to MPCC? Probably yes. But I can't discount them. I can't push them to the side, Derek. I can't say that they're not important. They are a part of our fabric. They are like the wooden truss in a home. They are like the doors that you enter. You have to realize that their importance, but how you enter the house and how you support the house is totally up to Jackson and 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 Khan and and Jim Urbina and David Kidd and Bill Gore and Gil Hans and all the others. We're going to still implement our ideas, but in the back of the mind, Derek, they're still there. And as for what Tim Jackson said when he visited the Dunes Club, he realized that there was a, a beauty in into itself of what the Dunes Club offered. And I think it's the same thing for McDonald and Rainer. There's a beauty that was offered to us. We should not discount it. No, and I'm more interested in taking that concept and internalizing it. It's like, I think we mentioned this in another podcast, Jim, it's blues is the and jazz are the foundation of rock and roll. And you can be a great musician building on the back of blues and what came before and then internalize that because that is the foundation and make your own music. The same in film. Think of film directors like a Scorsese or a Tarantino. They studied the old films. They studied the classics. They knew the directors. They knew the cinematographers. They studied the scores of the music. Did they just reproduce those? No. Look at Tarantino. We know he he references old movies and old Western in uh, old uh, movies cult classics from the 70s but then he takes that foundation that very valuable structure that was a, a, a revolutionary jump in cinema at the time he takes that as a foundation and internalizes it and turns that into his own product he 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 that's part of his vision but it's entirely his films are entirely his vision and i'm more interested in seeing that from architects now than seeing uh, pure replication uh, and, and Jim, I know you said you, you, you're not interested in doing that, but there are a lot of architects uh, out there working who do kind of peddle in in, in pure replication. Um, and and, it, and there's something interesting about that. And, and Tim, you said that a lot of players don't really understand architecture, don't know the history. And so the first time that somebody like that does see a, a really finely rendered Rainer McDonald template hole, with with a certain style of bunkering and it, it's so unique and the, the geometry that that can be very appealing to them. So th- so maybe there is some more progress to be made or or more room for introduction of that. But I'm just more interested from a from a design standpoint. Uh, what you're saying, Tim, is is to to take those and understand the lessons and the foundation and the strategy and the thought and the old historic courses and use that as a platform to take what you do in a direction that you can internalize and interpret and put your own spin and creativity on. Yeah, I know we, and, and, and we're all the sum of our experiences and our influences and some we may not even appreciate or understand, you know, um, you know, the impact that certain golf holes or certain courses that we've seen may have on us. Um, you know, and, 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 and I don't, and, and I don't want, and I, please, I don't mean to seem that I, um, that again, that we're dismissive or unappreciative of, of what CB McDonald or Seth Rainer did. We, we are, we are, we just, you know, for, for us as Jackson Con, we want to express ourselves differently. We want to express our designs a little bit differently and, um, and, you know, and try to do things. I mean, David is desperate 
to do things that haven't been done before. Uh, my partner, David Kahn, I mean, and that's the artist in him, you know, to some extent. And, um, you know, and, and again, we've been fortunate, like a client like, like Bob Parsons with the Bad Little Nine for him to give us the resources to do, try to create something that had never been done before in our minds um, uh, was, was a tremendously uh, satisfying creative outlet. Um, so we're, we're, again, very, very appreciative of, of what's been done. We're not dismissive of it at all. Um, we, we just we just want to try to I guess forge our own way to some degree. Yeah, I wonder if you can t- tell us about the bad little line because that thing I've had, unfortunately have not seen it, but th- I call it a thing. It's it's like this sort of unique creature. Uh, tell us about that and and some of the uh, opportunities you had to take architecture and twist it a little bit. Yeah, no. So we when when we originally engaged with Mr. Parsons, he had he had purchased the golf club of Scottsdale from the membership. Um, and essentially we just, you know, kind of cold emailed him. Um, he's a member, was a member at Whisper Rock at the time. And, and, and we had a lot of contacts there, um, having worked on that while we were with Fazio. And, and so we reached out to Bob and, and really the first thought was looking at the golf club of Scottsdale and what potentially could be, um, could be done with the, the golf club, the golf course to, to meet his satisfaction. And he wanted the golf to be very walkable. Um, and the original golf club of Scottsdale, there were four holes, the, the last four holes kind of climbed up and over the mountain. Um, and so we, there was enough room on the land though. So we, we rerouted the golf and, and in that space, we, we put a short course, um, and that intrigued Bob the opportunity that he could have 18 holes and have a short course as well. And, and as he bought more land and as the, the, the planning evolved, um, you know, eventually to, to include the other course, um, and the bad little nine, we, we kind of kept talking about the short course and what it could be. And, and, and one thing that we know with Bob, um, Bob is a very, very, he's a very interesting man, self-made guy, Baltimore, Maryland, um, you know, drafted into Vietnam. Um, and essentially the Marines in his words saved his life. Um, the discipline that he learned, um, while in the military, the experiences that he had, he came back and, and became the man that he is. Um, and he's very, very, very generous and very supportive of a lot of charities, but in particular military charities to this day, which is, which is, um, which is great and amazing. Um, so we postulated the bad little nine, almost like a Marine obstacle course in, in, in a way of thinking. Um, and we knew that Bob had to have something as it was important for Bob to have something that no one else had that he could brag about from a golf design standpoint. And the other course to some extent is a reflection of that as well. So what we, what we described to Bob was the, you know, what could be set up as the hardest part three course in the world without question, you know? Um, and that was the challenge. Those were the obstacles that were put in place and there had to be a reward. So our first, our first pitch to Bob was, Hey man, anybody breaks par on this golf course, man, free dues for a year. And he's like, guys, I like everything that I heard except that. You know? <laughs> um, so it evolved into the Friday being the challenge day. And, and, you know, if you shoot par better, you get a thousand dollar bar tab on Bob or whatever it is at the club and, and no one's done it to date. Um, the hard part for us was, is that, you know, once we pitched this again, much like the images, all right, now we got to go execute it. And, and our fear was trying to find the margin between almost impossible and impossible, because if it's impossible, that's no fun. If it's almost impossible, then there's a ray of hope. There's a ray of light. And that's what you're chasing, right? Um, you know, we knew that the golf holes were going to be short, um, because of the difficulty and, and, you know, I mean, you're, you're just wedging it all the way around, um, the, uh, the bad little nine. So anybody, you know, anybody can, can achieve the shot from a distance standpoint, um, you know, so much difficulty in golf when it's done with length, um, just becomes kind of boring and repetitive and it actually excludes a lot of people, but when it's short holes, there's a, there's a chance, but anyway, so for us, we have a young man who works with us, who, who lives in Colorado. And as we were talking about how to try to, you know, uh, conceptualize what these golf holes were going to be and find that margin, um, again, from a technology standpoint, Callan Hoppies, his name is a great guy. Callan's like, Hey, I, I have this video game 
that you can actually build golf in, right? Um, and I forget exactly which video game it was. Um, and so we actually built the bad little nine in this video game in an architecture program in a video game. And, and they, you know, they um, played thousands and thousands and thousands of shots to see what the contouring would be. What would we have to do to try to find that margin? And so we took a lot of what we learned from the video game into the field and kind of replicated um, a lot of those green concepts in the designs. We made adjustments as we went, um, but it was important for us to, to not fail, most importantly, um, and to do what we said we could do for Bob. And we actually used that video game, that architecture program to help us find those margins. Describe a few of the holes on the bad little nine. Oh. Um, you know, the, the, we knew that, the, that there, there had to be a journey and there had to be a crescendo. Um, and so the, the greens are widely varied. Um, the largest green number four is over 10,000 square feet in size. And uh, it's one through seven. And then it's hole number 88 and hole number 99. Um, and this, it's Bob. Um, he bought, uh, he bought a, a dog for $88 and he bought a dog for $99. And I think 88's gray dog and 99's white dog. Those are the names of the golf holes. <laughs> um, so hole number 99, the green's about just over 900 square feet. And it's a little mesa with uh, all the edges turned down and folding over. So the effective target's actually much smaller. So it, it's such an exacting shot. You have to land it on a dinner plate in order to hold the green. Um, and it, it's, it's such a fitting end to the challenge for the rest of the golf holes to have this shot that if you pull it off, um, you, 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 know, you got a, a, a 10 foot putt for birdie, because if you're on the green, you're going to be within 10 feet of the pin. But if you don't, um, you know, there's a, a great story. Uh, one of the members took a, uh, 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 two of the members actually took some guests out there and, and one of the guests maybe plays like three times a year. And as they stood there on the nine, 99th tee, you know, the other members said, listen, I can get my guy in the hole for X amount of shots. And I'll bet you 10 grand, you know, that I can, I can do that. And, and I think they ended up settling on like 17 shots and whatever the money was. Um, the gentleman made a 51 on, on, on the night <laughs> I told him to sit there and, and kind of finish it out. But, um, but you know, there's, there's, we played uh, Zach Johnson or Zach Johnson, Zach Blair came out and played the bad little nine and uh, he was in for the Phoenix open and he wanted to see it. Um, he went three, two, one we played it three times. Um, oh. and so he just, you know, so it's, it's, you know, obviously Zach's a great player, but, um, but it's just, it, it's fun. I mean, there's so many different shots out there you can play. There's so many different ways that you can play them. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've fixed a, a pitch mark a foot from the pin and made a 12 on a hole before, um, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but when you're out there with a group of guys and, you know, and the cocktails are flowing and the dollars are flowing, it is, it is so much fun. And, and the members that go out there and the guests they have, um, they go out and they do it again and again and again. Um, so that challenge, that desire to overcome the obstacles to 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 kind of beat the course, so to speak, um, is there. Um, you know, there's also a setup um, different from Challenge Day, where a lot of the greens have have bowl hole locations. Um, there's been days when seven guys have played the course, and there's been multiple hole in ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's that fun factor too. But um, but it's just it's it, it, you know, there's a lot of short courses at a lot of clubs around the country around the world. And again, we wanted to do something that was, that was unique, that was different, that would kind of stand out. Um, and it's been interesting for us because all the time and effort that we put into the other course and the golf course that it is today, um, the bad little nine has received far more attention than the other course. And that's something that we never really could have anticipated. Hey Jim, could you, could you ever imagine Jim, um, designing (laughs) through a video game? (laughs) That's, that's a, that's a jump in technology, isn't it? That didn't exist when, um, CB was around dragging his foot. Well, you know what? When, when you hear the backstory, you hear all of the story of the bad little nine, it makes you want to seek it out and play it. And you would wish that everybody could have that experience. 
Tim, Derek and I have thrown about different ideas and, and what's outside the lines and what is new and creative. And I said, it's only going to be accepted if people come back and play it. Otherwise, if nobody comes back and plays it, if nobody's interested in it, then you went outside the lines. And so it sounds like that you've achieved that goal. You've achieved that, that experience that the owner wanted. You have a backstory that goes with it. The entertainment value that it brings are all the good things that people are looking for something different. I look forward to seeing it someday. I've had friends that have played it and they've said, you got to go see this thing. So how you came about it, how you, you built it. Oh, by the way, if you don't mind, do, does David or you shape your own features or do you, do you have shapers that work for you? Yeah, I know we are, we're really good at burning diesel and not making a lot of progress. So, um, <laughs> you know, we're very, very fortunate. I mean, it, it takes any project that you work on, it takes a great team of people to execute it, you know? And I think a lot of times, you know, designers can be given too much credit, quite honestly, for the finished product and, and others may be given, you know, certainly a lack of credit for, for their contributions. Um, you know, we worked with a lot of really good shapers at, 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 um, at the, at the other course, um, and the battle nine and, and a lot of projects that we do. Um, so there, there are guys that are really, really talented that we enjoy working with that, you know, take what we do and, and we have those conversations and their contributions make it better. Um, and that's awesome. And when you're working with a team of people to, to execute something and the finished product is, is the sum of all those parts, um, it's going to be better than just us. We feel, you know, trying, trying to, to do that and accomplish that. And there's some, you know, there's some designers who are extremely talented shapers as well. Um, and, and they do amazing work. Um, and we're just fortunate that we get to work with some some guys who are really really good operators, and and they enjoy working with us, and we're fortunate to get to work with them. Hey Jim, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm Jim, I'm glad you asked that question because I wanted yeah. to get back to this this concept. You yeah. know, Tim, you and David do produce these these really rich graphic details, these these computer renderings, these these uh, three dimensional models, like all the things that you do artistically to present to a client puts that client right there with you client can see without any doubt what what this hole or, or this green side or this bunker is going to look like is there a challenge in since it's so specific is there a challenge in getting that concept that they see through a shaper into the finished finished product i mean you must there it's not as easy the way jim works we talk about a lot is, you know, there's not really, you know, start off with Pete. I didn't start off with, with definite plans. You know, there was, it was just all kind of slowly evolved in the field and different people input. And there was no starting point per se, there was going to be an end point, but there was no starting point. You have a starting point with this vision that the client has. Is that a challenge sometimes to, to get that look and that feature and that presentation spot on through somebody else doing the work? Not necessarily. It's actually, it's actually quite helpful because as much as it, it shows the clients what our goals are, it shows the, the shaper or the contractor what those goals are as well. And we don't handcuff ourselves to the images. We try not to. Um, you know, as a designer, if you're not the guy on the dozer, you have to impart what you want as efficiently as possible to the shaper um, in order for them to move the project forward. Um, you know, when I was at Purdue, um, uh, we had 35 students who started uh, working on the golf course crew with Mr. Dye. And you know, I got to the point where they, you know, they allowed me to get on a grade tractor and you know, Mr. Dye would come by and, and he'd either grab a stick or get in the dirt and, and show you what he wanted. And, and most of the time that, that meant that I was going to go stand somewhere and, and watch him hop on the grade tractor for a few hours because I couldn't conceptualize, you know, I didn't have the ability at that time um, to, to really understand what he wanted. Um, and he'd get impatient and say, oh, pro, just give me the keys, you know, and he'd just hop on there and, and kind of do his own thing, which was, which was awesome. Um, 
but it, it, it's helpful actually it's helpful and, and again we everything that we do from an image standpoint you know we really always try to stress that it's conceptual it's a starting point um and the finish we're, we're surprised a lot of times actually when the finished product may turn out really really closely to the image because it doesn't happen that often um because we find ways hopefully to make it better you know once we're in the field um you know again and i think that you know, some of the, the, the comments that we've heard about how we do what we do, some of the negative comments are, well, gosh, they just do this drawing. They're not really golf course designers. That's just a starting point. You know, that's just a baseline, just like drawing a plan view, just like doing a grading plan. Um, you have to spend the time in the field. So we work with those guys and we start with those, those baselines. We start with those starting points. And then hopefully, you know, the contributions of everyone that's working on it makes it better ultimately. And Derek, sorry to digress. I, I started to talk about the bad little nine and how they came to this to this idea, this, this video game, these, these renderings. And I just, it struck me that I thought, well, if they're just doing the shaping themselves, it must be easier to just create the concept. But if they're showing the image to another shaper, uh, and again, Tim says it, David Kahn probably feels the same way. It's a starting point. They let it evolve. They let it uh, be, uh, see how creative they can get. I guess my, my question is, if you're not shaping it, you just explained it. You hand it to a shaper, and then you keep playing with it. It's not a finite photo. Go build this. You start to evolve from the photo. Absolutely. You know, and, and j just as I'm sure as you do, we, you know, we start with flags in the ground and paint on the ground. Um, and then the, you know, we might be working towards, um, you know, that image or working towards a goal. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's very rare, quite honestly, that, um, the image that we present or show um, ends up exactly, exactly what we showed. I think we had one, uh, one golf hole, um, the fifth hole at Shady Canyon, Irvine, California, we remodeled um, a few years ago. Um, and the, 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 the image of the golf hole today is, is very, very strikingly close to the image that we created to show the club on what we were going to do. Um, and, and quite frankly, we, we, we didn't even necessarily um, utilize the image that we showed when we were in the field doing the work. Um, we didn't have it, you know, by our side dictating what we were doing. Um, you know, we went out there and we started working in the back of our minds. Obviously we knew what the goals were, but then when it was all said and done and we took a photo of the finished golf hole and compared it to the image that we created, we were shocked actually how closely they turned out together. Um, so it's, it, it can happen. Um, but again, we just, it's just a concept, it's a baseline. And then, and then we go from there. I can tell you what, I look forward to seeing that. And as much as I said to you in the beginning, when I played Coquia and I went to the Madison Club and I played Carincia, all of those golf courses are beauty, beyond beauty. And the settings are fantastic. I, I really look forward to seeing the Madison Club and, and the Bad Little Nine. And, you know, I'm just, I'm really curious to see where you and, and, and David go with these conceptuals, with this animation, with this, with this sketch uh, by, by, by yourself and David, I, I'm curious to see where it goes for the next 20, 10 or 20 years. Well, I appreciate that. That's very kind. No, thank you. I, we, and, and, and Derek and you both, we would love to have you guys out to, to Scottsdale national whenever you have the chance and, and spend some time with you. I mean, we, we, you know, we enjoy spending time with people who really have a passion for design like we do and, and an appreciation for, you know, what it takes to, to do what we all do. And, um, that would be an enjoyable and enjoyable time. Tim, you just one last thing you, mentioned a few times some of the criticism that you've heard over the years and, and people, you know, levy a charge that, you know, you're not really golf course designers, you're illustrators or whatever, whatever the terminology is, but what you're doing 
while different than the way Bill Coor, Jim Urbina, or Tom Doak works, it, it, it is producing a certain result that I think is popular. And you're also taking advantage of, of technology in a way that's A, creative, and B, wasn't available, you know, even, I don't know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, definitely prior to that, it, it wasn't available. Do you think that the way you approach it and the way you present your vision to clients is going to become the norm going forward as more and more young people come in, the next generation comes in with a completely different uh, life experience using technology and communications and social media and computers and graphic design and everything else that's available that people are just born into now. Is that going to be the language of the future, what you're doing now? Um, you know, I, I don't know with certainty, but um, I guess I'd put it this way. You know, one of the things that, that we have realized, um, you know, once you hang your own shingle is, um, is, is how competitive the industry is. Um, and in, and so the, you know, especially now with the, the relative dearth of jobs and the, um, the number of designers competing for them, um, you know, you have to find a way, um, to, to put yourself in a position to be successful in winning projects. Um, you know, we don't have the name recognition of, of, of Court Crenshaw or of Tom Doak or Gil Hands. And, um, even with our background with Fazio and the work that we did there, um, you know, just recently in the last year or two, we've had a, a couple of new projects where it came down to us and somebody else. And it was somebody else because they have greater rate name recognition, you know, at this point in time. And it's that whole catch 22, you know, you can't build a name until you get the opportunities and you get the opportunities until you kind of have a name. And, and we've been, I think more fortunate than most, but for younger designers, um, I, I do think that it's a way to communicate more effectively. Um, and certainly from an efficiency standpoint, when I started with Fazio, we were still FedExing blue line plans on Friday afternoon, um, every Friday afternoon. Um, you know, now we can produce a sketch, we can produce a concept and we can email it, you know, so much more quickly than, than we ever did. Um, so for us, you know, it allows us to, to kind of conceptualize and, and do things in a much more efficient manner. Um, and it also helps us, um, I think, separate ourselves from some of the, the name guys who don't do that. Um, and, and we've had some, you know, we've, we've competed against, um, you know, some, some individuals and gotten some projects that we may not have gotten otherwise. Um, but being able to show them, being able to express, um, you know, what we saw and what the degree of improvement was, was, was everything. It's everything, Derek. It's everything. It's communicating the idea. It's showing or having the owner have confidence in you. It's being able to, to uh, impart your artistic points to somebody who may not see it artistically. It's everything. And I think the new technology uh, is going to take off even more. I think uh, Jackson and Khan are, are just scratching the surface. Uh, and Derek, my foot dragging in the ground, <laughs> wearing out my toe on the, my, te my boot, uh, maybe those days are gone. Jim, my, my right shoe always still wears out more quickly than my left shoe. So <laughs> maybe the lesson is they're not mutually exclusive. You can do both. I think Tim's done a good job of explaining how those, uh, the, the graphics and the presentations are a starting point, but there's a lot of real designing and interpretation going on in the field as they move along through a project. I agree. I think that there always has to be. That's hope for you, Jim. Like, hope for the future. No chance. <laughs> You're not going extinct. I would have to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be extinct, but I would tell you that, that having that vision, laying awake at night, like I do thinking about the next 18 golf holes that I'm going to build 
it's in my mind. It's getting it out into the dirt. It's building it. But it's no different than what Jackson and, and, and what Tim and David do. They just are able to put it on paper for all of us to see. Maybe, just maybe, I'd like to have a little bit of hidden artistry waiting to expound on an owner when he comes onto the site. Maybe that's okay for me too. You know what I mean? I, I, absolutely. I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all, you know, and, um, you know, ultimately, like you say, Jim is creating something that people want to come back and play again and see again. And, you know, we, we always, David and I talk, if, if we walked off the 18th hole, whether it's a course that we created or a course that we played and we immediately want to go back to the first tee and do that again, um, then that's something that's pretty special. And, and that's always what we're shooting for. I agree. I agree. Derek, we all shoot for the same thing, Derek, all the same. Many avenues to the same destination, I guess. Agreed. All right, Tim, thanks for joining us. It was great talking to you. Uh, Best of luck in the future, and we hope to catch up with you on site somewhere. No, I appreciate talking to you guys very much, and thank you for having me on this morning. That was a blast, Derek. (laughs) It always is. (laughs) All right, Jim, I really enjoyed talking to Tim Jackson, and one thing that struck me was how – and and I, th- I think you picked up on this too is is how confident they are and it, it strikes me when I speak to younger designers, younger shapers, younger people in the coming into the business or who've been in the business, uh, maybe they're ready to step out on their own. There is a, a, a I'm struck by how confident a lot of these guys are. A lot of it's based on experience. Um, maybe a lot of it's based on just this eagerness to get their ideas out in the world, but. It's not when you talk to a lot of veteran veterans in the industry. There's a, a little more hesitation, maybe a little bit of frustration sometimes. Uh, you get, obviously there's all a, a range of of emotions and personalities, but it really strikes me when I when you interact with the younger guys, the guys who are going to be defining the field for the next 25 years, how eager they are, how confident they are in their own skills, and 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 Tim represented that. He you know even though. He and and David Kahn are still trying to establish themselves as a relevant firm. They're still fighting for jobs, marketing themselves, uh, trying to get as much as they can, looking for those new opportunities. There's no shortage of of of, of confidence in, in what they can do. Um, I wanted to go back to a part of the conversation just to clarify something. I thought it was a, a really interesting time of our in the talk when we spoke of uh, Seth Rayner and you asked if how grounded they were in classical uh, architecture of the golden age. And he said that, of course, they admire that and they, they're, they're familiar with it and they study it, but they don't want to necessarily do that. They want to take it in a new direction. And, and that kind of spun us off in a way. And I, I, I spoke about the concept of replication and, and doing uh, template holes, basically, instead of using that type of knowledge as a foundation and then as a jumping off point to explore your own creativity and thoughts. And I just wanted to make a distinction. I, I do think it's much more interesting for an an artist and a designer to attempt to come up with their own ideas, attempt to be, to be grounded in the fundamentals, which I'm assuming most architects are or should be. They should know where the the history came from, know where the ideas came from. But 
just kind of replicating to to do a, a Beeritz hole, to do um, a version of, you know, a, a literal road hole kind of replication. I'm not sure that's interesting, but I wanted to differentiate that with with kind of what, what you're talking about. I, I do think that it's vitally important what you do when you work with old historic clubs, because that's different. That's that's preservation. That's taking these fundamental ideas and preserving them for the future and for the obviously for the for the use of the club. And and that that's yeoman's work. That that needs to be done, especially on when the architecture is really relevant. So I just wanted to make that distinction between preserving what already exists and then trying to recreate something that that used to exist in a new form. Does that make any sense? It does make absolute sense. And and uh, again, I'll verify myself. Thank you for that. Is that I enjoy the creative part of new designs. Unfortunately, as Tim and, and David know, there are very few. They go to the Bill Coors of the world, the Gil Hanses of the world. And so, you know, they are, uh, Gil and, and Bill are having that, Dana Fry are having that chance to, to create these new artistic designs. Uh, I currently am involved with very fine clubs, very uh, historical clubs, uh, uh, which which desire to have the Seth Rayner moniker, that desire to have Alistair McKenzie uh, 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 for no better term, the, the love and the history of what McKenzie offered. So I enjoy doing that. But in a new design, as you asked me, would I do a, a Redam? Would I do a, a short? Would I do a Beer Ritz? No, I would not. Absolutely not. And neither would Tim Jackson and, and David Kahn. But the preservation and to know where you came from and to appreciate the, the golden age designs as we move forward, as we move forward, you have to at least give them their due and then and then go on with your own creativity, which David and Tim are so can't wait to do their own designs, to show their own creativity in the spirit of, you know, for no better sense, Tom Fazio. That's where they learned. That's where they grew up. That's how they got their their foothold into the game. You know, he was an inspiration for, that, for them. Maybe the works of, of, of David and Tim will be artistic and beautiful and, and fun to play. Uh, and uh, some of the younger guys uh, that worked with Bill and, and Ben and, and kill hands. Maybe they'll find their own art, their own art. But yes, we do. We still have to appreciate where we came from. We have to restore, when applicable, the, the history of, of of architecture. But who knows where it's going to go from here on? You talked about the a animation. Tim talked about using a video game to build uh, uh, the the nine holer for Parsonen. Who knows where technology is going to take us? But I still still say today, Derek, we have to know where we came from before we know where we're going to go. That's true. That's true. You know, and the, and the whole kind of underlying point of this conversation about, um, and we and you know, thankfully we didn't spend the whole podcast talking about the graphics that they produce. Uh, but the underlying point of that is that gives them an advantage in certain situations to be able to do that, to walk into a club or present to a client to show them visually in a way that line drawings 
or a verbal presentation can't. It, it gives them a, an advantage in, in a way to be able to do that. And it comes down to like, you have to get the job, right? That's the whole name of the game in your business and in many other businesses. But in golf design, if you're going to do what you do, what Jim Rubina does and what so many other people do, whether it's trying to uh, become a consultant for an old historic club with, with great bones or to get a new job or to get hired on to you know be part of a, a resort development or whatever it is, you've got to sell yourself. You've got to sell your vision. And it really comes down to to sales and marketing in a way. That's a, a, a major part of this job that, you know, I don't, maybe maybe it's not interesting, but we don't really address enough. It's kind of a, maybe it's a sensitive topic in a way, because if you're not getting jobs, you have to uh, analyze like what you're doing. And then you see somebody else getting all these jobs and, uh, you know, it, it's potentially a cause of discomfort because you see where, where the, where the money's flowing and, and where the jobs are going, but it's a big, it's a big deal, isn't it? And and I think it's, it is in an ongoing fashion, probably a continuing advantage to be able to produce visuals and, and graphics and, and to be able to have a major presentation when you're going in front of boards and clients major presentation major graphics all of the things you talk about selling yourself to the client Derek I've been very lucky Gil Hans Bill Coor they've been doing this for 40 years 35 30 years so they have a they they have a spectrum of of designs that that people will simply go and play and enjoy it but David and, and Tim, they have to show the, their visions, not of what they've done with Fazio, but their own visions, their own ideas. And they have to get the job. We all have to get the job. And selling yourself and showing the client what you can do is all part of that. You know, technology has passed a lot of us old timers by the Twitters and the and uh, Pinterest and all those images that people do to show what what the latest thing they're working on, you know, we, you know, I don't think of it doing that way. But I can guarantee you, anybody in the business that's thirty years between the age of thirty and and forty five is using all of the technology available to them to show what they're doing, to present their ideas, to give an, a, a sense of what they can do, and. You got to get the job before you can show people how much creativity you have. Hard to do in these times. You nailed it. You got to get the job. And and when I talk to these young architects and they're bursting with ideas and confidence, (laughs) I want to say to them, you got to land the gig, man. You got to land the gig. And some of them are, many of them are, and they're off to a a great start. But what you have in your contemporaries of, of your peer group who came up when you did is, is you have what they don't have. And that's a resume. You have a track record. Yes. You, you have a, a list of, of referrals. You know, people can go out and see your work. They can look up, look where Jim Urbina has been and they can go see the, the work you did, the before and after they can talk to clubs, they can talk to clients and they can say, what's this guy all about? And that's a huge advantage. Yep. That's always going to be an advantage. So, uh, it, it's just, it's one of those things where it, it's, it's great and it's challenging getting the jobs going forward, but you have your resume to put forward and with, with so few jobs and really the, the work is, um, you know, it's the carousel of club cons- club consultancies going around. Um, I think that resume is, is more powerful than anything. And if technology can help you 
build that resume faster, which sometimes sometimes I struggle with, uh, Derek, because uh, young kids uh, getting into the business, they show you know four or five bunkers that they've worked on or a couple of green sites that they worked on. And it's very, very beautiful to look at, uh, very uh, uh, impressive when you see it in a, in a picture form. But they still haven't put in the time to to the the years to grind it out and and experience it all that that goes in the, into design and construction. But I, I can't fault him for the technology that that that's there. But all someone has to do is call Mike Kaiser and ask him about Jim Urbina, and you know <laughs> that's a value that I can't. Uh, no technology can beat that. No image, no animation, no pictures, no sketches can take away from a simple five-minute phone call to Mike Kaiser and says, hey, uh, Mr. Kaiser, tell me a little bit about Jim Urbina. You know what I'm saying? So I'm very lucky that I've had the experiences that I've had. But these kids with their technology, they'll get that, they'll get that chance, and, and they just got to get that job, as we've talked about. Yeah, I don't I don't fault them either for taking what what they have up to this point and 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 using it in any way they they can. It, that that's their only option right now, you know, well they can right. they, yeah, just just build the work, you know, build the portfolio, make the connections. I I said this in the podcast with David Kidd. That I think the the most important thing up and coming designers could do and this would even even count toward Jackson Kahn is become proficient in a, in a in a powerful way of dealing with city councils and municipalities and and people that are in charge of public golf um, private clubs too but golf courses that need to be refurbished going forward that dealing with the the, the mess and the administrative work that comes with getting any kind of public or, or uh, taxpayer money or financing or public private resources, any kind of arrangement like that is time consuming and difficult and onerous and frustrating. But that's where we need the most work in golf. That's where the opportunity lies. That's where the real excitement lies is to have old rundown courses revitalized in interesting architectural ways if you can become proficient and expert in dealing with the red tape that's going to give you an advantage in this field over the next 20 years because i really believe that that those green sites brown sites uh in city environments need to be preserved golf needs to sell itself as an environmental friend as green space that needs to be preserved and protected in the form of golf because it also serves a, a public utility. If you can become provi- proficient and the best in the business at dealing, like Andy Staples is a great example of this. He's really pushing for that. He has a list on in his office wall of, of almost every municipal and city contact across the country. He's ahead of the curve in this and Young designers would do well to kind of think in that way and say, that's where I'm going to make my mark. It's not just good for their business. It's good for the, for the game of golf and preserving golf courses and creating interesting architecture. And what if Jackson Kahn, what if they took their presentation, their, their sketches, their artistry to a city council, showed it up, showed it on a uh, 20 by 50 or 80 by 90 inch TV and said, this is what we could do with your public golf course if you just give us a little bit of cash 
we could transform your golf course uh, and and let people in the public setting enjoy what we've been doing artistry-wise and give them a chance. Because most people on the city council have no idea what you want to do. And if Jackson and Can could bring that imagery and artistry to a TV screen and show them what they want to do, they'd have an advantage over a lot of That's a great – that is a great – Great point, because the people that sit on boards in most city councils and and commissions probably are not odds are they're not golfers or they don't know much about golf. And if they do, if they don't play golf, they probably don't have a good idea of what it is. It's perhaps a negative thought about the the game. And to be able to see in in a in a demonstrative, visual, three dimensional, graphic, interactive way of what golf could look like in whatever piece of property they're talking about, that would turn heads and that that could swing votes. And it doesn't have to cost that much. Yes, they talk about uh, uh, budgets that were, you know, nobody ever asked them what they were spending. But he admitted that they want that challenge to build something that's economical and still have the, the artistry that goes along with that. And I think the the visuals that they would provide Man, if I could walk into a city council with some of those visuals and show people that don't even play golf what they could have in their backyard, uh, that would be a home run, a big home run. Yeah. Well, I think I think uh, Tim Jackson and, and his partner David Kahn are, are well positioned right now. They've got a lot going for them. They're they're young. They're energetic. They have experience. They they do have uh, if they do interview for jobs that do require a lot of manufacturing, a lot of major cuts a lot of engineering, they've got that experience. That's going to be an advantage. Yes, they do. Uh, you know, yes, those jobs do. are out, those jobs will be out there in one form or another. So that's an advantage. And they, they, you know, it just seems like their head's in the right place too. They, they want to push it creatively. Agreed. Uh, very creatively. And, and I would love to go uh, play their, their, the other course and, and the bad little, uh, nine. the little, uh, the bad little nine. I'd love to go with you and just, uh, go over each with each other's thoughts what we see what they did and I, i'd be curious to see because when you hear the backstory when you hear how it was created it's so much more enriching when you go and play it because it's just not another golf course it's somebody's heart and soul yeah and, and i want the experience of making a 12 on a 94 yard par three <laughs> with no hazards I'd other than a, sand i'm i I make a 12 no matter what. So, you know, I don't have to go to Scottsdale to do that. But, but yes, I do want to see the artistry. I do want to see what they see through their eyes. And I'd love to take some of their sketches, what they, what they showed Parson. And I'd love to see those sketches and to go see what they built and see how far off they were. Th- that would be entertaining for me. That would too. Well, that was a great talk, Jim. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Derek. Appreciate it. Uh, Tim, Jackson, thanks for the spending your time with us, and we'll do this again soon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheerios. Cheerios.